0: This has been Modern Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. My guest today is Harrison Schley, a specialist in fine and decorative Asian art and Judaica from around the world. And he's also a member of the International Society of Appraisers. I'm very excited about our conversation today, which will be the first in our mini-series This one will be dedicated to Japanese art and how it was shaped by Japanese society and mentality, while our next episode will be dedicated to another area of Harrison's expertise, that is judaica. Welcome, Harry. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Hi, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here.
0: All right. To begin with, please briefly introduce yourself, how you got interested in the fields, you work. And what's your educational and professional background?
1: My name is Harrison Schley. I have a PhD in Japanese art and history from the University of Pennsylvania. I've spent a number of years researching and writing in museums across the United States and Japan, and in particular, the Philadelphia Museum of Art and the National Museum of Asian Art at the Smithsonian Institution. And now I work as an art appraiser and consultant specializing in in Asian art. And as you mentioned, I, I though we're not talking about today, I also specialize in Jewish art and Judeo.
0: Right? How did you get interested in this field? I wouldn't say it's very common.
1: That's a long story. When I was younger, Japanese art and media was really something that I saw on a really regular basis. So whether it was on TV or whether I frequently went to the Japan the Philadelphia Museum of Art as a child, where I would often see the tea house. I would they have a huge tea house on display? I highly recommend anyone in Philadelphia to go visit it. And these various things got me really interested in in, in Japan as a place that I want to visit and to learn more about. So when I went to college at the at Columbia University, I went with the intention of spending a semester abroad studying in Japan. And when I was there, it was really just this really amazing experience. And I was really struck by the, a general appreciation in Japanese, uh, in many aspects of Japanese culture and particularly in Japanese Art culture and tea culture, a real appreciation for objects that people use in daily life ceramics, lacquerwares, the material culture that makes up daily life. And this is something that I found very appealing. So, as I was thinking about what to do next, I had always been interested in art and antiques. And I decided, you know what, it would be really meaningful to further explore this area of Japan and Japanese culture. So I decided to pursue my PhD in Japanese material culture and ended up focusing on on ceramics particularly.
0: Wonderful. Let's talk about your dissertation, which was dedicated to marketing and aesthetics of Edo period ceramics. Could you briefly outline your research area and uh, talk about periods in Japanese art? How do they differ from one another? And what are the specifics of the Edo period?
1: This is a very good question and art historians, especially the last question, what was special about the Edo period, art historians have been basically asking that same question since the late 19th century. Briefly, Japanese art dates back over 10,000 years. And in fact, some of the earliest pieces of pottery in the world have been discovered in what, what is now Japan. So there are quite a few historical and art historical periods that scholars use when talking about Japanese history that I don't think we have time to go into in too much detail. But basically, the Edo period, which was from about 1615 to 1868, is a period in Japanese art and history that gets a lot of attention for a number of reasons. One is its historical proximity. It wasn't actually that long ago. So there is this allure of a past that feels distinct, but isn't actually too distant and art historians and historians point to a lot of factors that make the Edo period really particular. One that a lot of scholars point to that I'll focus on here, and there are a lot of others, a lot of other aspects of the Edo period that we could talk about. But one that I'll talk about here is the rise of a distinct merchant class and a really thriving nationally and internationally linked economy. The merchant class is a really important factor for art because it really helped create this huge market for art and art objects, which drove production and innovating styles. And a lot of my own research into Edo period marketing looks at these merchants and artisans, particularly ceramics merchants and art particularly ceramics artisans, and merchants who operated in those spheres. And I basically argue that the artisans and the merchants and the patrons created this complex, multi-layered network that links the artisans, the patrons, the clients, and the tastemakers that was that, and all these people are really involved in the production of art, really, from the creation stage, where the the artisan was really even just thinking about what the design should be and what the art should look like, all the way through the procuring of materials to the marketing to potential clients to the final sale of the piece. Really, was this huge? I use I, I actually rather than a work I use the word well, web, a spider web, to describe all these inter connecting relations that made art production possible during that time.
0: Right, there are all these connections between artists and marketers and clients. How did they influence each other?
1: I'll give an example from that I to- that I have done a lot of research on, which is the Araku family of potters. There are a number of very famous potting families in Japan. Many of your listeners are probably familiar with the Raku family of potters talking about the Araku family of potters who were another not as widely influential or well known as raku but also a very significant maker of ceramics for many centuries and to the present day in terms of an example of this sort of web of relationships i often point to the story of Araku yozen who whose exact dates I'm exact dates of his life are escaping me right now, but he basically lived from sometime the 18 in the 1770s, and he passed away in the I think it was in the 1850s. He was born into this family of potters, but tragically, his whole future went up in flames when he was still a child because there was a massive fire in the city of Kyoto where his family lived that. Destroyed his whole family's workshop. His parents both died young, so he was this would-be potter who had been cut off from his means of, of both learning his skill, his and learning his trade, and also being able to produce his art. So, in steps the whole n- n- web of patrons and relations, and basically the. Uh, a very prominent patron connects him with the Raku family, which doesn't, which sure brings him into their workshop and trains him and prepares him to go out on his own to open up his own to reestablish the A Raku shop after a decade or so of studying with them, and then he continued working very intimately with these patrons to get ideas for what his art should look like and historically, prior to this time period, the Iraq family really made, it, it was famous for really making one form of Japanese ceramic, which are these ceramic braziers, they're like a little, a little, like a little pro portable stove pot. that you can put a kettle into that's used for the tea ceremony. So historically. The Iraq family had only made these, had predominantly made these braziers. However, due to the influence of Josen's patrons, they encouraged him to start making other kinds of utensils for the tea ceremony, which he did and he was very successful and they gave him feedback on what kinds of designs he should use. And he started making his designs and then basically through this dual relationship between him and his patrons and also some prominent merchant families that helped him expand his clientele. He was able to really rebuild this workshop into a really powerful, to into this artistic lineage, which continues on to the present day.
0: It's, it's really interesting. You mentioned that the profession was passed on in the family. Could you expand on how this system existed?
1: Basically a key structure for artistic families during the Edo period was a system called the Iemoto system. And this system predates the Edo period a little bit and it continues to the present day. But it's a real key structure for maintaining artistic lineages in Japan. And it basically structured itself around a household and around of a family, which is typically, though not necessarily a biological family. And in a classical Iemoto structure, there are three key persons, the first key person is the retired head the person who had been the head of the family in a previous generation they worked their life in the family business making for example ceramics and then they retire to typically continue making art but in a less formal and a less public role then you have the second person who is the current Head of the family. And this would be the person who is the public face of the workshop. And even though the workshop might have a a number of um, apprentices and employees making the objects, this is the person who sort of is the overseer and gets credit and takes responsibility for the current practice of the family's workshop and finally you have the heir to the heir to the workshop the typically a son who would be trained in the family's techniques and style from a young age so that when they are ready they can take over the role of head of the family when the head in turn retires continuing the tra- the chain and this is a, a very common format that a lot of artistic families followed throughout the Edo period and to a to a degree also up to the present day
0: how much did they earn not in figures but compared to some other professions
1: that's a really really hard question i and i wish i could actually answer you i've had this conversation with a number of scholars And there's a sort of collective shrug that we all make at the end of the conversation. So obviously, if you're a a high-level artisan, such as the Raku family or the A-Raku family, you're making enough to lead a comfortable life. We have some price guides for how much things they were selling items for, but we don't have clear records for how many of those things they were selling. So it can be I've read scholars who have tried to extrapolate that they sold one pot for one single rule, which rule is a measurement of currency, which could theoretically support an individual person's needs for one year. So this person extrapolated that based on all of the ceramics that exist out there, if they were making at least one view each, they must have been making a, a fair amount. This is this one scholar was writing about the A. family particularly. And I think that there's a point to his argument. However, not all things were valued and sold at the same rates. So it's hard to get a really clear sense of what these artists were making. It's a project I wanted to work on and it's really hard to key into. Alternatively, you also have a lot of artisans who are working in a much more and less rarefied field. So they themselves would, would not be making as, as much and find themselves in a different socioeconomic category.
0: My next question is. uh... About some popular subjects and themes in Edo period art. Did they change over these two centuries of the Edo period?
1: That's a really good question on popular subjects and how they changed. So there were a lot of changes and shifts throughout the Edo period, both culturally and stylistically, a really significant turning point that I'll point to. is and this has been written about really extensively the the famed scholar mary elizabeth berry from uc berkeley wrote a, a real canonical book called japan in print information and nation in the early modern period and, and she's a historian and she talks about how the rise of print culture in the late 17th century in japan really Revolutionizes the transmission of information and by extension artistic styles throughout the second half of the Edo period because just everyone has so much access to information and the styles and publications that it really creates this huge uh, uh, the term she uses is the library of public information so a in, in, well, in huge database of of information that people have, information and styles that people have access to. In terms of some popular subjects, there are a number of popular subjects that are, that take form in different segments of art at different time periods. A lot of the images of art that broader American and European audience are really familiar with from Japan at that time, for example, are woodblock prints. Woodblock prints are, are made throughout the Edo period. However, the genre are all one of the fa- most famous artists of that style are really operating in the second half of the Edo period. So a lot of the famous scene, visually productive, famous scenes of from Japan and a lot of the Kabuki prints and the prints of beautiful women, that model, even though it exists throughout the period, a lot of the images that, that we're thinking of date to the latter half of the Edo period as an example of one thing that sort of changed and shifted over time. If I was to look at any individual medium or subject, I could talk about ways that they changed on a micro level over the period of time. Metalwork, for example, uh, oh, there's a lot of evidence, a lot of people are really interested in and collect sword guards and the various metal parts components. Of Japanese swords, and basically at the very beginning of the 17th century, at sort of the opening of the begin, that when the Edo period was first being established, a lot of these pieces were fairly uh, simple and very utilitarian. There are exa- there are exceptions of very great pieces of art, of uh, of aesthetically complex pieces made at the time, but there's a, a lot of very utilitarian and productive pieces is a, is really dominant as opposed to later by the end of the 17th century, when the swords are in many ways, really transformed from a, a weapon into a symbol of power and status, the accoutrements, to the swords, the sword guards, the various other furnishings become a lot more ornate and complicated. And it's in some ways to the point where they even take away from the functionality of the sword itself as a theoretical weapon. So that's another example where one thing changed over time. We'd have to it's a broad subject so we'd have to tackle each area individually but those are a couple areas a couple examples of some some broad shifts over over that happened during this time.
0: Yeah I understand many of these pieces depict daily life of Japanese people, how do these artworks reflect the values of that time?
1: That's a really complicated question. And so sort of just in the same way that if you were to look at different segments of the art market in the contemporary United States or Europe, you might get wildly diverging images of contemporary European or American culture. You get the same kind of divergence when you look at Edo period art. So, for example, if you were to look at woodblock prints of kabuki actors, which, as I mentioned, in the later half of the Edo period was a really popular subject, you might get in these, this image of a very flashy and exuberant culture. But if you were to look at tea house architecture or tea bowls from that same time period, you would get this idea of a a much more reserved and austere Society and reality; it all gets mixed together as part of this broader society. Then, just as it is now,
0: what significance does the Edo period hold for the Japanese people? How does its heritage reflect in today's culture?
1: That's a really complex and huge question. That's asking how history and art influences contemporary culture in Rome. Every society is imbued with its own history. So I'll first, on a practical level, I'll say that certain practices that are thought of as quintessentially Japanese, like the tea ceremony, while they predate the Edo period, they grew into the cultural practices that we recognize today during that time period. So that's one example of a very of a cultural practice that Japan itself uh, points to as being a an very key aspect of its history and its culture that sort of took it, it again predates the theaterdo period but took a recognizable shape and format during that time and there have been changes since since, but it, uh, it continues up to the present day also we didn't talk about it earlier, but I've spent a lot of time researching the creation of japan's sort of formal or historical canon japan unlike many nations japan has something called a national treasures system but basically the government can formally designates individual objects of as important pieces of cultural patrimony and the whole process of establishing national treasure system really took place in the late 19th century after the edo period but Uh, I argue in some of my research that the processes for beginning to winnow down what individual art and art objects traces back to the print culture that I mentioned earlier and these catalogs of what individual scholars thought of as important objects that were being published as early as the as early as the early 18th century.
0: Now let's talk about some practical aspects of becoming a collector. If I'm looking to start a collection of Japanese art, um, what would you recommend to me? What should I consider and what should I
1: look at? The essence of my role as an art advisor and an appraiser is to help people. And when someone reaches out to me to help them either build a collection from scratch or to expand a correct collection or to research a collection that they already have. And what they're ultimately doing is in, in, is it's an ultimately an invitation for me to help them learn more about something that they truly love and that brings them joy. So that's sort of the basis of the process that I tried to take. When people ask me how to start looking for a collection and what to look for. So what I tell people, to consider when they're thinking about starting to collect Japanese art is first think about what kinds of mediums and subjects are interesting to you. Are you interested in woodblock prints, paintings, ceramics, lacquerware, baskets, swords, maybe you're not sure what genres or mediums of art you're really interested in so we could you schedule a a visit to some museums and some exhibitions and really start get a really good sense for what exists and really critically what you like because everyone has their own tastes and sense of style and that has to be the basis for any kind of collection what is interesting and meaningful to you Uh, when I'm working with a client and anyone on their own. Once you get a sense of what you're interested in, it's a good time to start looking online and at galleries and auctions and see what's available. And it's really important also to consider your budget. Are you looking to start with a small piece? a low level investments to get started, see if you really are interested in building this collection and you want to continue down this path. Do you want to start with a handful of smaller pieces? Do you say, no, what I really want to start with is there's this one expensive print or ceramic or a sword that really speaks to you and you want that to be the sort of the grounding anchor of this future process. So we look on how to go about acquiring the item, the object that you really see is speaking to you at that moment. And from that initial purchase or the initial acquisition, I should say, is where are we building the collection. And it's also not just starting the collection, but building and maintaining it. So my job at that point, once an artist, once a someone has a sense of what they're interested in and how they want to proceed is to keep my eye out as I visit galleries and auctions. And I encourage my clients to also be looking around and seeing what's out there for things that could help add to your collection. I think a really important part of having a deep and developed collection is having something that's well-rounded. So it's important for Part of my job is to suggest new things, and I think a collector should consider new and slightly different kinds of objects that can help round out and add a depth to a collection. Many collectors get to a point, at some point, when they're collecting careers, when they want to either sell or donate some of the things to make space for new items. And I, help, I can help facilitate those sales and donations. And frankly, all collections eventually get to the point where they either have to be sold, bequeathed, or donated. And my part is to help collectors make sure that process goes as smoothly as possible.
0: I agree. Everything starts uh, with an interest and uh, looking at uh, what uh, you want to get uh, from it.
1: Everyone likes new for things, and I think that there are definitely art advisors out there who want you to get what they like, and then you end up with a whole bunch of stuff that might've cost a lot of money that you don't actually like that much. So I I think it's really important when we're talking about building a collection to start with what are your interests and and where they go. And and then my job is to help you to help distinguish between what is good and what is not as good so that as you as a collector continue to grow, within your niche of interest that you're getting the best possible kinds of works.
0: Right. Two types of collectors, I suppose. Those who start with uh, an interest in a specific art form and those who see it more as an investment. I suppose you have different approaches to working with these two types
1: of collectors. You have someone who's interested in the art and it's, 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 they're buying it because they love it and they want it to be part of their life that in, in a way, frankly, is easier because you're just talking about developing and finding the styles that they are really interested in. In terms of investing, it's a much harder gamble ultimately because you're looking at a piece of art and you're trying to guess how much it's going to be worth at some point in the future. So you have to have a really fine tuned look at the market and where art objects are going. But overall, many areas in the Asian art market are pretty stable. Meaning that if you buy something, you're, tran- you're transforming cash into an an object, which can then be liquidated, but it's not necessarily gonna be worth significantly more a number of years later than it was at the point that you purchased it. And sometimes you'll get lucky and you can do market research to hedge your bets and have a sense of what's going to be done on the road, but it's a really complicated process.
0: Thank you, and my traditional question Related to the title of this podcast, Being Modern, Being Human, what does being modern and human mean to you? That's
1: a really big question. Probably get in trouble for this, but I'll admit that I've always really disliked the word modern in in as a historian in most historical discourses, because it's often used to draw some kind of contrast between quote unquote properly developed society versus an uns- uncivilized people, the modern versus the not modern. And I really think that everyone living in their own time is living in the modern and at the forefront of their own culture. So I think we, by being, we simply by being, we are modern, I guess, is that's my, that's what modern means to me. As for being human, I think, I think a real essential part of humanity is our ability to create connections with others, and not just those who are close to us, but those who are far away. I'm not Japanese, I'm not of Japanese descent, but I've always felt this, I've always felt like my role, whether I've been living in Japan, where I've lived for a number of years, or whether I've been in the United States, was to be a sort of bridge that can help bring my culture, which is American and Jewish culture, closer to this other group, which is similar and familiar in so many of the fundamental and important ways. I, mean, I think it's our ability to see and appreciate others and other people and other things that can lead us to be really and truly human.
0: Exactly. I agree 100%. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoy being modern, being human, I'd love it if you could take a moment to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback is so valuable to me and helps you make the show better. And if you haven't already, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.